Last week we launched our study into the uh, what are called the pastoral epistles, the pastoral letters that Paul has written to Timothy and to Titus. And we'll be looking at First and Second Timothy and the book of Titus as well over the next several months. I want to begin with verse 1 and 2 and then we'll lead into the scriptures early that, earlier that Carl had read. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope, to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ, our Lord. This morning now, we will read where Paul seizes on the number one danger facing the church and Timothy in Ephesus. This is not an isolated or rare enemy. This enemy is the false teachers. Jesus called them out in Matthew chapter 7. He said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Later in that same book, Matthew 24, Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Matthew, excuse me, Paul warned about them. This morning in the pastoral epistles, but also in 2 Corinthians, he said, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And then Peter also, he saw them coming. And 2 Peter 2 verse 1 says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. You know, we need to listen very carefully to what Paul writes here. False teachers were dangerous because they were persuasive. They were attractive. They were very subtle. And they turned hearts away from the truth of the gospel. And when we look back in biblical history of false teachers, whether it's in Galatia or in Corinth or in Ephesus, they may seem to stick out with danger signs and flashing red lights around them, but if you think about it for a moment, you know that they did not. They certainly don't today either. They are just as dangerous today because what they promise is very, very attractive. Wealth. Prestige. And an inner exclusive knowledge that others don't have. Perhaps even a special group security. It's us against the rest of the world. The false teachers are usually very winsome. They're highly intelligent oftentimes. They're very persuasive and skilled, especially at manipulating minds and hearts of men. And what they teach still today is very, very subtle. Often the heresy is not fully revealed until a person has become so entangled that they no longer see how far they have departed from a true biblical gospel. Many of us, many of us have fallen prey to false teaching sometime during our lives. Even now, even now the 
flaming arrows of the evil one may be zinging in on you and we, we pray that the shield of faith will extinguish them. But false teachers are a constant battle and it appears so often throughout the scriptures. Paul gives us some help on that. Gives us some direction on things to look for and what to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would lead us this morning. What is false? What is true? How do we know? What can it do? Lord, we, we need you. We are simple people. We know the enemy is the father of lies. And he has fooled the smart of us, smartest of us. Father, we ask that you would reveal yourself in your word, that you would give us very humble hearts, hearts that depend upon you and your word and live for Christ, that, that find our full security in the gospel that you have given to us. Please lead us this morning. Open our hearts and minds to see what you would say to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Paul gives an assignment to Timothy right off the bat here, and it's a call. It's a call that he is to fulfill. When did he give it? It says at the beginning of verse 3, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia. Macedonia is about approximately 500 miles as the crow flies from where Ephesus is, where Timothy is leading this church. And if he's, Paul's in Philippi or somewhere in that area, it's separated by what's called the Aegean Sea. Timothy had traveled with Paul in this area. And he had also been ordered by Paul to go and preach and lead churches in this vicinity. Now when Paul says, I urge here, it's not the strongest of directives. It is more of an encouragement from a father to a son. It's, it's like a mentor to his protege. He's giving an urgent appeal from Paul to Timothy here. And Paul knows what's happening. Paul understands what Timothy is under. But keep in mind, Paul is a man on fire for the gospel at this time. What he accomplished in the hardships that Paul endured are miraculous. It is the kind of work that God does in a man that he calls and fully possesses. Oh, that we would be that kind of men and women. That as God calls us, he would possess us and we would have that kind of abandonment for him. Listen to what, what it cost Paul. 2 Corinthians 11. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure. And keep in mind, stripes is not a unique type of clothing. We're talking about whipping, scars of stripes. In prison more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. That was supposed to bring them to the point and the brink of death. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, 
In perils in the sea. In perils among false brethren. The man lived in danger constantly. Can you find a spot in there where he sat down and said, Ah, finally. No, he was in danger constantly wherever he went. In weariness and toil. In sleeplessness often. In hunger and thirst. In fastings often. In cold and nakedness. And beside the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. You see that focus? All these things that he's been through. You see all that Paul has gone through for the gospel and the churches he's loved? Brethren, he is not about to give up these churches to a bunch of demonically motivated charlatans. The battle is on. Timothy has a location to hold. And he tells him, remain in Ephesus. Timothy, hold the ground. Do not relent. Remain there in Ephesus. You see, Ephesus was a strategic front line for the gospel throughout Asia Minor. Paul himself had spent over two years in focused training of the brethren there to equip them for battle. Ephesus, it was a city drenched in idolatry and perversion. It was a thriving port city of great wealth and commerce. But it was like a giant perverted funnel pouring in sin from the four corners of the earth. The temple of Diana ruled the citizenry of Ephesus. Wicked hearts of men were set on sensual fire by the temple prostitutes and the perverted practices of this satanic religion. But now, now Paul speaks to something quite different. A new attack has sprung up on the bride of Christ, his church. This time the devastation is inside the walls. It was vital that Timothy remain to give no ground. Perhaps he was considering leaving. We know that on occasion Paul had to spur Timothy on toward boldness and courage. In 2 Timothy 1 verse 6, Paul writes, Therefore I remind you, Timothy, to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel, according to the power of God. Timothy had to be be pushed, he had to be encouraged, he had to be exhorted. Timothy was a young man, perhaps in his early 30s at this point. He was very faithful, he was strong in doctrine, but he also seems to have been prone towards timidity. Paul writes him saying, let no one look down on you because you are young. Like many of us, I don't think he was a fan of confrontation. But now he must step up to the battle line. He must be combat ready. He is the one called by God. And he is Paul's personal spokesman to this church. And he says, stop them. What they teach, stop what they teach. He says that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Charge here is a much, much weightier word. It is actually a military word. It means a military command. It does not allow for questions or compromise. It is not an attempt at persuasion. It demands obedience to a superior from an inferior. Timothy charged them. 
Timothy is to step up and exercise his God-given authority and demand this false teaching stop. Timothy's authority to do so is recognized by Paul. He writes in 1 Timothy 4, Timothy, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. 1 Timothy 6.20, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. You have authority here. Paul warns that some are teaching, they're teaching another doctrine, is certain people or certain men, and he, specific names are not given here. But we can be sure that Timothy knew who they were. Perhaps Paul did not want to elevate their status by mentioning their names in a letter that would be read to the church. Or perhaps he did not want to give those who were not mentioned license to continue their false teaching if they weren't mentioned in this letter. But I think that Paul likely wanted to throw a broad net over any men that were in any way entertaining the idea of teaching unbiblical doctrine. Don't get any ideas. This must stop now. And it is clear here. And this is what was so difficult. This is what was shaking things so badly there. These men, these some, these certain men, they're leaders in that church. Very possibly, they are elders. They are teachers already. And that is a role that Paul emphasized for elders. They have an audience in the church. People are listening to these fellows. And they are causing damage to the church. And most clearly here, they are in opposition to the gospel. They are in opposition to the apostles' doctrine and to the gospel that Paul has so clearly taught to them over a period over two years. That's who these guys are. And they are inside now. Now the other doctrine that he speaks about, it's not detailed or really clear in this letter. But if we look at some of the others, here are some different Gospels or other Gospels that showed up in Paul's letter to the, first of all, the Graceless Church in Galatia. Galatia 1, 6-9. Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. These other teachers, other doctrines, were in opposition to the gospel. In Corinth, 2 Corinthians verse 11, verse 4, Paul says, For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. He's warning them, don't do this. 1 Timothy 4 verse 3. There it indicates that the different doctrine may, may possibly be strict regulations by those who it says in verse 3 in chapter 4, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to receive with thanksgiving. So perhaps what they're doing is this ascetic lifestyle. They, no more marriages. No more pleasures. 
You, you must be in strict removal from anything that would bring any pleasure to the flesh. We don't know for sure. But we do know that it had to do with Judaism. And we're going to see that as we go. But this is one thing I like about the lack of specificity here. Throughout the history of the gospel in the church, there have been innumerable false teachers. They have distorted, they have lessened, and they have hardened the message into a perverted gospel. The attacks have been many and they have been varied. And it would be quite difficult to ever memorize and analyze every attack made on the gospel so that you wouldn't fall prey to it. That would be impossible. However, if you know and love the gospel, the biblical gospel, the false teachers, those wolves that creep in, and it says they creep in in shepherd's clothing, it will become apparent to you. But this requires that you truly seek to know the gospel. I, I exhort us, I challenge us on this. Walter Martin one time said, a Jehovah's Witness can destroy a Christian, a typical Christian, in about 30 minutes. Because a typical Christian doesn't know what he really believes. And a Jehovah's Witness knows every point to attack. The same thing can happen with Mormonism. The same thing can happen with just about every other aberrant belief and cult and religion that you'll run into. They can be very effective. Not all of them that are a part of them are, but many are. Are we do, we, do we live by this gospel? Do we know it? Do we love it? I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you for three reasons. One, so that you can share it with others. If someone was to ask you, can you please explain to me what is going on in your life? Can you please explain to me how, how I can leave this mess and know God? So that you can share it. But also so that you can defend it. If someone were to attack it, coming from a different cultic group or religious group, would you know what you believe? Not, not do you know everything about what they believe, but you know solidly what Christ has done, who He is. What man is. Who God is. Why, why was it necessary for him to die? What that accomplished for you specifically. The security of it. All these things we need to know. Because what we offer in the gospel of Jesus Christ is like no other treasure on earth. So I challenge you, know it. So that you can effectively share it. And so you can defend it. But thirdly, know it so well that when false teaching comes, like Paul said, if it, even if it is from me, said Paul, and I would say that even if it is from this lowly beggar, if I was to teach something false, I hope that you have studied the Word of God and are so committed to it that you could recognize it. And you could come to me and hold me accountable or correct me. We need that. But we must know this gospel. For that sake, it's okay that we don't know specifically what was going on in all of these other aberrations. We need to know the true and living word of God. Paul here demands that it stop. You know what that implies, don't you? It implies that the other doctrine is actively going on. The demand that Paul makes is not preventative. 
It's too late for that. Timothy has his hands full now to stop what has already invaded the church. Matthew Henry said, Ministers must not only be charged to preach the true doctrine of the gospel, but charged to preach no other doctrine, not add anything of their own to the gospel or take anything from it, but that they preach it pure and uncorrupt. So what do these other doctrine preachers focus on here? Well, they focus on in verse 4, it says, they give heed to fables and endless genealogies. Give heed in, in one literal translation means that, that they were addicted. Their minds are bent towards these things, towards these myths, towards these fables. And Paul talks about them to Timothy and to Titus. Uh, he will speak out of it again in verse 7 of chapter 4. But reject profane and old wives' fables. And exercise yourself toward godliness. In 2 Timothy 4 verse 4. And they will turn their ears away from the truth. And be turned aside to fables. To myths. Not giving heed. It says in Titus. To Jewish fables and commandments of men. Who turn from the truth. You may think. Well you know that's archaic. That, that was an ancient primitive problem that they had. Brothers and sisters. Paul taught these people. For over two years. And yet they fell into fables and myths. And endless genealogies. We must study as, as he wrote to Timothy in chapter 2 of, verse, chap, of 2 Timothy. Be diligent. Study yourself to show yourself approved to God. A worker who does not need to be ashamed. Rightly dividing or handling the word of truth. Be students. Be workers of the word of God. And it speaks here about genealogies. And there's a whole lot of different interpretations about what they're talking about. He says it again in Titus. He says, but avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and striving about the law. For they are unprofitable and useless. A commentator by the name of Kelly suggests that the myths and genealogies must have to do with allegorical or legendary interpretations of the Old Testament centering on the pedigrees of the patriarchs. Much of the rabbinical Haggadah consisted of just such a fanciful rewriting of the scriptures. And what they would do, that the, the, the Old Testament rabbis, or the rabbis from ancient times would take the genealogies and then they spin these yarns about what happened to this one and this one and, and create these fables and myths. And eventually what happens as we've heard, if you tell a lie long enough and loud enough, people begin to believe it's true. And so people would believe these things. And they would have no basis truly from the Word of God. And perhaps that's some of what is being talked about here. Um, Philip Ryken, though, he speaks this right into our current day. And I want to read this. He says, The myths and endless genealogies of the present day are extra-biblical texts which are treated as Scripture. Okay? We have them today. We have these endless genealogies and myths. And watch for your toes on this as I speak. Because I may be stepping on some, including my own. Here then lists, he then lists the Book of Mormon. The Apocrypha, if it's regarded as sacred scripture, as it sometimes is. The Gospel of Thomas. You've ever heard of that? The Bible Code. Even the Da Vinci Code. 
all of which have taken on various levels of authenticity and validity today. And you may be thinking, that's preposterous. These things are, these are, are, are fictional. They're, they're movies, some of these things. But you go on in the streets and you talk to people about the origins, origins of Scripture, about who Jesus was, what the church is, and you're going to hear some of these things quoted back because they have become valid in the eyes of the culture in which we live. I would also add a few more. And one in particular is the Chosen series. I realize that's a touchy subject to many. But each time someone has explained to me their enthusiasm for the Chosen, it has been because of something that has been added that is not evidenced from Scripture. But it adds a human or a dramatic touch. And I say that it is dangerous. Uh, that's all I'm saying. Be careful. Because I've heard this over and over again. Well, they, they showed me this and sh showed me how this was, Jesus was doing that. Or this was the issue with this disciple. And, and it's preposterous. It's not found anywhere in Scripture. But it added an element or a touch of personal or attraction to it that drew men and women into it. Now, dramatization, I know that we have things where that occurs. But what I'm warning against is when you take something like that and allow it to creep in and become biblical authority. You see the difference? Of, uh, I hope I'm trying, to, I'm trying to make myself clear. I know there's dramatizations, there's things that can be done and some of those can be effective. But be very, very careful to where you don't start to assume that must have been what happened. This is what happened. And this is where we must stay. And anything that ventures from that becomes meaningless or endless genealogies and myths. And we have to be cautious about that. What do they cause? What do these myths and genealogies cause? Well, it says they cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Disputes. Uh, the result is that these add-ons to the truth of Scripture... They set up a sense of uncertainty. They, the solid foundation of truth fades away. You end up constantly searching for an end or a conclusion. One of the translations says it results in occasions of doubt. Or ministering questions. Revisiting a quote from last week. One preacher described the Ephesian setting as written in a time when men and women were quick to give plausibility to anything and certainty to nothing. That's where they lived. And that's where we are in this culture in which we live. The Word of God, including the Mosaic Law, are meant for something far different than what the false teachers are demonstrating in the Ephesian church. The foolishness of other doctrines leads to cloudy, mushy uncertainty. That's what it does spiritually. But the preaching of biblical gospel leads to godly edification, which is in faith. And what does that mean? Well, edification also translates here as furthering the administration of God. And that may seem more com complicated. Or stewardship from God. This describes the God-given responsibility of church leaders like Timothy and those elders who have departed from Paul's gospel. 
It gives them the responsibility to provide truth, specific truth, that builds solid faith in men and women. They are stewarded. They are given the gospel and the responsibility as leaders in that church to build men and women in the faith. Not to share myths. Not to share their own subjective opinions. Not to share these genealogies. Their responsibility, their stewardship, their work in the administration of the gospel is to build men and women up in true faith based on the word of God. The example given by the early church found in Acts 2 verse 42 is that they confessed that they continued steadfastly in the apostles doctrine. That's what they did. Steadfastly continually in the apostles doctrine. In other words they were devoted to the truth that the apostles taught. The spiritual food of the church was that and no other. There were no fillers, fats, or falseness. No other books, traditions, or authority figures. It was the gospel. It was the word of God. Henry again writes, Ministers should avoid as much as may be what will occasion disputes and would do well to insist on the great and practical points of religion about which there can be no disputes. For even disputes about great and necessary truths draw off the mind from the main design of Christianity. And eat out the vitals of religion, which consist in practice and obedience as well as in faith. That we may not hold the truth in unrighteousness, but may keep the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. There was a need for action here. Verse 5 says, Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. Paul's goal in condemning the other doctrines is simple. It really is. It's love. Agapao. It's, it's the love of, that God demonstrates. 1 John chapter 4 verse 7. Love is of God. You see what that's saying. Love's source, its original spring, its creator is Yahweh, is God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Love. Let's, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 13 so we get this picture real quickly. 1 Corinthians 13, we know that chapter. And we know what it contains before we even get there. It's a description of love. It is powerful. It is beautiful. And we'll begin with verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Keep in mind, the same author that is writing 1 Timothy and urging us to love is the author who wrote this description of love. And though I have the gift of prophecy and can understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now, we see in a mirror, dimly. But then, face to face. Now, I know in part. But then, I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Anybody feel like they're really good at loving after you read that description? And I have holes everywhere. But that's where we want to go. And that's where Paul is pointing us here. The purpose of Paul's command and the purpose of God's command are the same. It is love. This love says comes out of or it issues from three places. And this isn't the only places. This isn't meant to cover every source. But Paul is saying this is where it comes from and it's aimed at these guys who are the false teachers. He says it comes from a pure heart. Hendrickson describes the heart as the fulcrum of feeling and faith as well as the mainspring of words and action. The heart is pure when it experiences the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit. Love comes out of a good conscience. The word conscience is literally con, meaning with, science, or science, knowledge. It's a knowledge together with. It is that, according to Mounts, he describes it, it's that innate, innate and universal inner awareness of the moral qualities of one action. It means it condemns wrong, and it commends what is right. And then sincere, sincere faith. It's described in some translations as faith that's not pretended. Faith that is unfeigned. Again, Hendrickson said, A true knowledge of God and of His promises revealed to us in the gospel and hearty confidence that all my sins are forgiven me for Christ's sake. We believe that. We know that. All three of these, mind you, all three of these cannot occur in false teachers. They occur only in those who have been regenerated to new life by Christ out of death and sin. Jesus does that. Jesus brings this. Love is the goal. But here is Paul's caution to all who reject the love of Christ. The caution found in verses 6 through 7. There are three tragic results of straying from love. From which some having strayed have turned aside to idle talk. They have strayed. It means to wander away. They've swerved off the path aimlessly, unclear in direction to begin with. But then it says they have turned aside. Then here we have an intentional direction that leaves the truth and goes to lies. At first it was wandering away. And now they've wandered away so far that the truth means nothing and now they will turn towards lies. And what does that end up in? It ends up in idle talk. Uh, King James has a great term. It calls it vain jangling. It's empty. There's no substance. It's fruitless. It's meaningless. Those are the results of straying away from the love of God. And then he goes on. It says, they're desiring to be teachers of the law. 
understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Now, desiring to be a teacher was not a problem. That's not what Paul is, is getting at here. Paul actually commends that desire. He says in chapter 3, in this same book, he will say, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. That desire is not a problem. The problem is, those who strongly desire to be teachers of the law, didn't have an idea about what they were talking about, nor what they were so confidently affirming. There is ignorance on one side, and there is arrogance on the other. John, or excuse me, James warns in chapter 3, he says, not, not many of you become teachers, my brethren, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Paul was holding these false teachers up to a strict judgment. What motivated those guys? Why did they want this? Well, it may have been a number of things. They would look upon the rabbis and see them with their, their gowns and their wealth and their power and success. Maybe they were moved with self-importance, pride, financial gain, influence, power. These were the same motivations of the Pharisees. And they were also called teachers of the law. But when you think about the ignorance and the arrogance, it this old legal adage fits these arrogant and ignorant false teachers perfectly. And it goes, if you have the facts on your side, pound the facts. And if you have the law on your side, pound the law. But if you have neither facts nor the law, pound the table. They don't know what else to do. All they can do is speak more loudly, more confidently about things they do not know. But Paul... Now there's a man who knows the law. And Paul steps up. Why the law? Here's the value of the law. Verse 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Some believe that the false teachers were accusing Paul of criticizing the law. Teaching that it was not good. Saying that the law no longer had any use for those who worship God. And if that was their attack, they were totally off base. Paul himself wrote in Romans 7 verse 12, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law, it is of great value. But the law is not good for everything. I may have a very good car. I do. It starts every time. Runs well. But it cannot get me from Wichita, Kansas to Kiev, Ukraine or to Cameroon, Africa or Beirut, Lebanon. There are things my car does well but it re would require an airplane or a boat to get me to those locations. The car is good but it is not designed for transcontinental travel. Similarly, a map of North America, even a good GPS device, is very important and useful for travel. But neither one of those will get me one inch closer from my home in Bel Air to visit the Mar family in Cahuatemoc, Mexico. I need a transport device like a car or a plane. So what's the point? That's like the law. The law is good. But again, it is not good for everything. 
It cannot save. It cannot provide grace and mercy. But what God has designed the law to do, it does perfectly. The false teachers did not understand the use of the functions of the law. And, and I'm going to explain three basic uses of the law. First of all, it's a civil use. The civil use of the law is its restraining power. What I mean is that there is a threat of natural, social, or civil consequences in breaking the law. For example, the death penalty restrains the outward sin of murder. But it cannot reform or renew the heart. It is written that the law can stop up a polluted fountain, but only the gospel can heal its stream. The civil use of law. Secondly, it's called the pedagogical use. It shows unbelievers their sins and drives them to Jesus Christ to be saved. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, we read, Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. It shows us our sinfulness. It shows us how badly we need a Savior. Romans 7, verses 7 through 10. What should we say then, wrote Paul? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. One might say, that's bad. No, that is good. He was fooled in his early days as a rabbi, as a Pharisee, to believe that he could find life through the law. That wasn't the law's fault. That was his faulty understanding of the purpose and use of the law. And so when the law finally struck him, he realized, I'm dead. When God gave him that understanding. The third use of the law is what's called the didactic or the normative use. Here God's law shows the saved believer the standard for life that honors and loves Christ. It is a road map or the rule for how God desires us to live. Romans 8 verse 4 says that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, flesh but according to the Spirit. Oftentimes people, when we share the gospel, if it's come through clearly, will say, that doesn't make any sense. I can live however I want to. If, I've, if I believe that, Paul anticipated that as we've talked many times. He says, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live in any longer? Jesus said in John chapter 14, he said, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. Now by obeying those commands, we do not garner or increase the love of Christ for us. By no means. He loved us as Paul says in Romans 5, when we were still sinners. But for us, obedience to the commands of God 
The law of God allows us, gives us opportunity. It is our way of demonstrating love to him. It identifies us, it shows us, it gives us an expression of love back to our Savior. The civil, the pedagogical, and the didactic. And if you want to talk about those afterwards, we can go through that a little bit more. Now here in verses 9 and 10, Paul demonstrates the lawful use of the law. He said it is good when it is used appropriately or lawfully. Verse 9, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. That is quite a list. It's a sin list. And here Paul begins with full confidence. He says, we know, there's no question in his mind, that the law is not made for a righteous person. A righteous person has no need for the law. He is without failure and has no need for restraint or direction of an external law to guide him. A truly righteous person would live the law perfectly. There's only one man who did that. He who is without sin. However, in verses 9 through 10, Paul uses the law to describe lost men or women. And he applies several references to portions of the Ten Commandments. It's interesting how he does that. The first three are what are called couplets or pairs. And they focus on the first half of the Ten Commandments, envisioning man's broken relationship with God. The lawless man, the man who has no law, demonstrates this by being rebellious and insubordinate. He has no law to answer to. The ungodly person, he has no regard for that which is sacred, including the will and the law of God. So he revels in sin as a consummate sinner. The whole unholy, the unholy is one who is indifferent to God and his responsibility to honor him. And it leads him to profanity that tramples on all that is holy. Man's sin against man then is exhibited in the remainder of Paul's list. And some of our translations are quite different on this, so bear with me as we look at this. Murders of fathers and murders of mothers. Literally the word is threshers or beaters of parents. It is a violent violation of the fifth command to honor father and mother. Manslayers is the next, or murderers. Then it is obviously breaking the sixth commandment, not to commit murder. Fornicators and homosexuals, or sodomites. They defy God's seventh commandment to not commit adultery, which forbids sex outside of marriage. And in this culture in which we live, sadly, we have to say that there is no such thing as a homosexual marriage. There may be civil unions or things that our government has approved or given identity in that way, but the scriptures do not have such a thing as a marriage between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. So you could never be unfaithful to that because it could never occur. So this idea of fornication and homosexuality or any deviant sexual behavior are covered with that commandment. Then he goes on to speak about the kidnappers or man-stealers. It describes the ultimate in stealing. 
Kidnapping was reportedly very common in 1st and 2nd century A.D. in Asia Minor. It's the theft of another person. Then he talks about liars and perjurers. And here Paul intends to cover all types of dishonesty in and outside of legal settings. Any kind of dishonesty. It defies the ninth commandment not to bear false witness. And then Paul, he sums it all up and he says, And any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is healthy. It's talking about anything else that is unhealthy for us spiritually. The lawful use of the law in this case is the pedagogical function. The law is being used by God in this way to expose a man's sin to himself and drive him to Christ for salvation. When any man's life is held up to this list, the conclusion is found in Romans 3.10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And then Paul finishes and he says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. You see, he's taken a long period here to get to this last statement. And so I want to connect them. He, in the middle, he gave us this list, the offense list. But he says, according to the glorious gospel. The question I would ask you, what is according to or conforming to the glorious gospel of the blessed God? If you back up to verse 8, look what it says there. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, covers the list, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. It is the proper use of the law that fits perfectly as an indispensable part of the glorious gospel that reveals the righteousness of God and our hope for eternal life. The law is good when it is used lawfully. Paul, next week, will go on to to dig in and tell how this impacted him. He will give portions of his own testimony And you're going to see some powerful things. And you will see how this argument is continued. And how he brings us to bear on these false teachers. When I think about the use of the law. And salvation and grace. It brings me oftentimes to Romans 3. Verse 21 through 28. Please turn with me to that chapter. And we will finish up with this portion of scripture. Romans 3, 21. But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. 
And that is where Paul goes with his gospel. The law is effective. It shows a desperate need men have for a savior. For whenever a list of sins is presented, all of us are as guilty as can be. But Christ has brought salvation. He has paid the price on the cross. He has satisfied the holy wrath of God against our sin by offering himself up as a sacrifice on our behalf. And God looked and is well pleased with his son and we now stand before him with the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. That is for those who have believed, who have repented and left their life and followed Christ. I urge you to do that. If you have any thoughts or questions, please don't hesitate to see see me or one of our elders afterwards or one of the other brothers or sisters in here that you know walks with Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the law. It, it is painful. It is a guardian. It is a taskmaster. It is a tutor. It is a mirror. It is a light into our path, a lamp to our feet. It, it brings soothing and, and relief and it pierces our hearts through joints and marrow. goes to the very heart. Lord, we thank you for the law of God, the word of God and the law of God and giving us an understanding of how desperately we need you. Father, if, if any, for those in here who deny the, the necessity of Christ, who foolishly put it off, we pray that your Holy Spirit will speak. Show them, Lord, through your word, through the law of God, who they are and how much they need you. Lord, for us who you have graciously, kindly given, some of us, as Paul said, knowing my heart, no one has been so hypocritical and filthy as I have often been. And that you would call me out of darkness into the marvelous light of Jesus. You have done that to many, many men and women here. Lord, may we be grateful for the law. May we use it properly. And may we point people to the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, give us an urgency. This is fresh on my heart, seeing the loss of this young man, Malachi. That is life and that is death. I pray, Father, that we would not walk around foolishly as if that was not reality. Please use us, Lord, to bring salvation to the lost. In your name we pray. Amen.